as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we are actually at a transition point. If we look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have finished Matthew 5, where Jesus has outlined the character of life in the kingdom, going through the Beatitudes. He's talked about the influence of the life of the kingdom, talking about how the church is to be the embodiment of that as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Again, we bear witness to the true light in our extraordinary slash ordinary lives. We looked at the topic of the law and the Christian, how our lives, one of the reasons I had Al read the scripture he did that talked about the law of the Lord, really talking about the entirety of the word of God, that our lives are to be conformed to the word and how that plays out in terms of our ethics. And in chapter 6, we're making a move from that towards the piety of the disciple, looking at issues such as giving and prayer and fasting and the piety of a disciple. And of course, you have a crazy pastor who, whenever I come up with a transition point, in my mind, I'm going, oh, it could be time for a review. And so we are going to look at, I don't know how many of you knew, Luke has a version of the Sermon on the Mount as well. And of course, there's something about my thinking. I have to be thorough in all my teaching. You'd think I'd be able to just settle and stop. I'm not very good at that. I'm kind of this all or nothing guy. And so I want to focus on, today will be kind of a summary review, okay, of where we've come in the Sermon on the Mount, looking at and contrasting a little bit with Luke's version. I was prepared enough to give the PowerPoint slide to the folks back there. So they're going to put it up on the wall. And I think what's going to come up, see, look at that. See that? Luke 6, 41 to 49. This is kind of like, could be my test to you. Do you bring Bibles? How many bring Bibles? Or I could even say something, leave, leave the words up. I'm going to read it in, se- in a second. I want you to know there's a method to my madness. I'm not just being facetious in terms of this. When I was in seminary and Tim Keller was one of my teachers, he was teaching a class on worship. And he said, the essence of worship is surprise. Of course, we're all looking at each other, meaning, are we supposed to say boo? What what does that mean? Of course, he quickly explained himself. He says, no, he says, here's the logic of it. Worship is this communal, familial gathering of people with their God and the triune God. And so the Holy Spirit, what did Jesus say? Worship in spirit and in truth. The spirit being God is sovereign, and as sovereign, he does whatever he pleases. And so the surprise of the Holy Spirit is if there are 75 or 100 of us in this room, you have no idea what the Spirit is going to show you as each of us are confronted with his revelation, with his word. Some of us may be comforted greatly. Some of us may be afflicted by the word. We may be deeply challenged. We may actually leave here. I expect some of you today to leave here troubled. That's okay. Some of us might be utterly astounded By the grace of God, we may see the love of God in a way we never have before. But the essence of worship is surprise. So it's a good thing to come in and not know that not everything has to be exact. It's okay to get out of the box. Even for Jeff, it's okay to get out of the box every now and then. Luke chapter 6, 41 through 49 begins, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, Let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not even see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." Matthew chapter 5 and 6, we have a transition point, but we learn a lot about Jesus as a preacher and teacher, and especially the unity of the content and even the style of his preaching and teaching throughout Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. He is teaching about life in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 4, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's close. It's here. It's amongst you. And Jesus is teaching that wherever Jesus reigns, the kingdom is present. And we need to understand one thing, that his rule, his reign, prior to his second coming, is primarily in human lives. That in the community of his followers, the kingdom is made visible. That is why Paul wrote to the Ephesians that through the church... Through us, this Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Through the church, the invisible kingdom or invisible wisdom of God. And this passage here in, in both Matthew's version and Luke's version has a lot in common with the wisdom literature of the Psalms. You hear about foundations and building a house and all that. You ought to be thinking a lot of Psalm 1 and the blessed man who's like a stream planted of water. And, of course, what is Paul saying in Ephesians 3? He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made tangible, is made visible before the principalities and the powers. It's almost like God is saying to the principalities and powers, look at them. They are my trophy. Look at them. They are what's on display. Look at their lives. You want to see where I rule as king of kings, where lord of lords, it's made tangible, it's made real, its embodiment is in my church. How does that make you feel that God basically is saying he's showing you off before the principalities? And I bet you that is both challenging and humbling. That is both a privilege and a responsibility. I was thinking about this sermon as I was getting ready. I was thinking I needed one of our young people who knows more about superheroes than I do. Was it Spider-Man who said, with great privilege comes great responsibility? Do I have that right? What's that? It was his uncle. Okay, but I was close. I was in the genre. Okay, now we have an interactive sermon going. This is pretty cool. Okay, but you get the point. See, you're working with me. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And what makes the responsibility not legalistic? This is the utter antithesis, the furthest thing from legalistic, because it's born out of privilege. And the privilege, the humbleness, the bull, 
is the fact that you are the embodiment of the very kingdom of God. And one of the things Paul says about living practically the Christian life is he says, think about yourself, calculate yourselves, count yourselves, dead to sin and alive to God. So you have to count yourself and calculate yourself as the embodiment of the kingdom of God. Commentator put it another way. Since we're the way that that the kingdom is made fully visible, he said, wherever groups of believers are faithful, we see clear signs of the kingdom. Like when you're driving down the road and you see a stop sign. Stop sign doesn't make your car stop. It's a sign. I better stop now, or at least I'm supposed to stop now. It's a sign of it. And those signs serve as previews of coming attractions. Friends, here's your privilege. You are the preview. You are the trailer of the coming attraction of the fullness of the kingdom of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us exactly how we operate, we live as that embodiment, as that preview, as that trailer of the coming attraction. And what we see, and that's why I said this is a summary review, we see it basically in three general areas of our lives. And this is the way I want to pull this apart. We see it in our relationships, we see it in our character, and we see it in our foundations. These are the three. I happen to be a very organized person. I like things very precise. I like things in my boxes. I feel like my world is right when everything's in my little boxes. And so if I put the Sermon on the Mount and say, here's how it's showing us how to be that coming attraction. Here's the nice box. It's got its box of relationships, its box of character, and its box of foundations. Okay? Look with me at verse 41. Let's focus on the relational side. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, in all three points here, um, this is a review. We're going to be coming. There are parallels. There are things that Matthew and Luke say the same and things that they say differently. And we're going to be hitting this passage again in five or six weeks' time when we look at Matthew chapter 7. So I'm giving you the bird's eye view of this this morning. But part of the bird's eye view is to recognize that in context, Jesus is speaking in the context of verse 37 here where he says, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Now I think this is just my very unscientific, I've not done a survey or a poll, but my very unscientific opinion that these may be among Jesus' most misunderstood sayings and words and teaching in the, in the entirety of the Bible. That certainly, let's, let's work from the church, I'm not sure we fully understand it, to general non-believers, to the world and the culture, I think some of the most misunderstood, distorted words are, do not judge lest you be judged. Here's how we hear it cited in the world. Frequently we hear them cited when, for example, we'll make a comment on a situation and we'll say something about good and evil. Someone will say, ah, you're judging. Don't judge. Which seemingly, here's the, what's being said underneath. The words underneath those words are, don't ever say something is wrong. You're not allowed to say something is wrong. It's not up to you to say what's wrong. Now I want to press a little logic here for a second. First of all, the logic conclusion of such an attitude would be to treat good and evil alike to not make any moral distinctions whatsoever, 
to make moral distinctions completely a matter of indifference. And that attitude flies completely in the face of the Bible. What's going on here in Matthew's version, and here's kind of a set, Matthew's version, he says something like, do not give dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. You know, in those words, Jesus is basically saying, make judgments, make distinctions, decide and distinguish between what is a dog and a pig and what is not. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, spiritually, some people behave like pigs and dogs. They can't handle the truth. Again, I've heard that in a movie somewhere. And we need to recognize them. You need to what? Judge in that way. And you need to deal with them appropriately. That calls for a certain level and a certain kind of discernment, of judgment, of distinction to be made. So if we see what do, what do not judge lest you be judged doesn't mean, what is the positive application? What does it mean? And the answer lies in the application Jesus uses. Now before I give the specifics of the application, let me kind of preface it. Remember, here's part of, welcome to Jeff's plane. I'm not a pilot, so hopefully it's safe up here. Okay, but you're looking from 32,000 feet, all right? And we're looking down here, and one of the things that we see, I hear often the phrase, speak the truth in love. I say it, I hear it, and I think a lot of times, almost like the phrase, do not judge, here's what that means, I think. Here's at least the way I hear it a lot of times. Speak the truth in love means... I'm really for you, I love you, I feel this love, so it doesn't matter how I come across. My love may stink, it may smell the high heaven, I may be harsh, out of control, whatever. Friends, in the Bible, there's a difference between loving and loving well. I don't doubt for a second that the majority of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, sincerely love. Don't throw tomatoes at me. I don't know whether any of us love well. And all of us, even if we've learned to love well to a certain degree, can love better. There's a reason this is wisdom literature. And do you know what wisdom means? The definition of wisdom to an ancient Hebrew was skill in living. So speak the truth in love means speak the truth in an effective, in a strategic, in a skillful way that will address their truest needs. You will speak not just the content of the truth, but the manner, how it comes across, how it's intended, how it's received. There's no harder thing in life than loving well. It's the hardest. It's why Paul said it's the most excellent way. And when Jesus is talking about judgment here, he's talking about the issue of loving well. And here's the illustration he uses. He says, pretend he's talking to you, and he says, do you see that man over there? So Jesus is having a conversation with you, and he says, take a look at this guy. He says, do you know what he has? He's got a plank of wood in his eyes. It's a log. It's big. And look, look what on earth he's doing. Listen to him. He's saying, I see a tiny speck of sawdust in my brother's eye. Let me get it out for you. But he's got a plank of wood. He's stumbling. He's falling. He doesn't know how to do it. He's missing the eye. He can't do it. He says, what's wrong with that man? He's looking for sins in other people, and he's pouncing on them when he sees one, like he's the sin police. So absorbed is he in his command to not be flippant about sin, 
that he's blind to the fact that while he's being ruthless on other people, he's not ruthless on himself. He's not being ruthless on himself. He's blind to what he sees. Theologians and commentators call it the sin of censoriousness. Sensitive to the sin of others while being desensitized to the sin in your, and the theologians say, in your own heart. Not just your behavior, not just saying you're, pride in some, you're proud in some generic way. We read out of Psalm 51, God desires truth in the inmost being. Do you know the truth about the darkest places of your heart where you're proud in your defensiveness, you're proud in your lack of courage, you're proud in your having to be right all the time, where you are proud? Do you know your own arrogance? And are you ruthless on your own arrogance? See, this is the ultimate tragedy of the hypocrite. He knows everybody else and he's clueless about himself. This comes back to the example of King David. I mentioned, believe it or not, the whole service ties together. 2 Samuel chapter 12 gives the illustration from David's life. David had a good friend. He was blessed. His name was Nathan. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. And he raised this ewe lamb. He grew, it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. He prepared it for the one who would come to him. So recognize he's keeping the law by doing this. This rich man is being hospitable, keeping the law. David's hearing this whole story, and he burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why then did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your very own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. What is crystal clear in David's life and implied here in Jesus' teaching is that strong feelings about the sins of others that are not matched by a ruthless dealing with our own sins is hypocrisy. And friends, it's dangerous. That's why one of the mentors in my life, a man by the name of Jack Miller, used to always say, be very careful when you're right. You are more dangerous. And what did he mean by that? He meant you're more dangerous to not loving, you're more dangerous to not loving well, and you're a danger, therefore, to others and to yourself when you are certain you are right. Be careful. We are called to be the embodiment. If we would begin to apply and live like this passage, remember, and one of the reasons I chose Luke's version to go over this morning is one of the differences, not in content, but in explicit statements. Luke sums up this whole by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
Matthew's version is teaching just the same explicit obedience. But Luke puts it very clearly. You say, Lord, Lord, in all these areas of your life, and then you go on. You don't even address your style of relating. That's the area of relationships. Should I keep going? Character. Verse 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The good man brings good things out of the good treasure stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil treasure in his heart. Good proceeds from good, bad proceeds from bad. Basic principle there. What does that have to do with Christianity and the gospel? Everything. Because friends, and and I hate qualifying sometimes, John Calvin called this the key motif in understanding the gospel. And he said it was union with Christ. The Bible describes what it means to be a Christian by the phrase, you are in Christ. Good treasure in you is Christ in you. Paul, in Colossians 1, said, here's the mystery. The mystery I'm unveiling, the mystery I'm making visible, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you become a Christian, here is the fundamental change that happens to you. It's not about you have a body of truth, you have a body of truth, you assent to that and you believe it. Yes, you have faith and you assent to that, but when you do that... You are united to Jesus Christ. You participate in Jesus Christ. You're actually incorporated into him. And that's where transformation comes from. And Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount that, and he's not saying, and it happens in our Westminster Confession talks about this. It happens in all sorts of degrees. But the fact of transformation is inevitable and non-negotiable by the reality of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is in Christ. And so one of the things that Jesus here is specifically doing here, and again, we're looking at this from about 30,000 feet, is he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit or Christian character, he talks about how it's it's kind of an inside-out thing. And one of the things he says is against these things there is no law. A good tree bears good fruit, and you can't have a law come against this. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, what does that mean? He says, imagine a law against joylessness. Imagine a law against peacelessness. A law against anxiety. Imagine a law against such things. He says, they would be utterly useless and meaningless. He says, why? Because law is a form of moral constraint. It is essentially negative in its nature. Law can stop the results of a messed up heart but it cannot actually get in and deal with the messed upness itself. Now let me repeat that, because friends, my prayer for me, my prayer for you, is we come to an understanding and we grow in our understanding of the gospel. The law cannot get in and deal with the messed upness of the heart. All it can do is try to stop some of the results of it. There can be a law against murder. It can't deal with the anger and the bitterness That's in the messed up heart. There can be a law against theft and stealing. It can't get at the root of it and deal with the jealousy and the coveting and the envy. There's a reason Paul said to the Galatians, the only thing that counts is a new creation. 
One of the things Jesus is teaching here, and here's the fulfillment of wisdom, human flourishing, the idea of being a truly human being comes from being a new human being, a new humanity, a new human flourishing. The only thing he can't, that counts, he said in Galatians 6.15, is a new creation. The only thing that will work, it's not law, but it's actually what fulfills the law. The law was never intended with God's purpose to be the means for this work to work. The fulfillment of it is the Holy Spirit and making you a new being. Which is why in the practical day-to-day, Paul says you have to learn to think differently. I said this in Sunday school and in the first service, I'm going to say it again. Part of my job as pastor is not teaching you, not simply teaching you what to think, but teaching you how to think. It's not enough to have the right facts, to know what to think. Oh, I have to think Jesus is God, Trinity, election, I know. You have to know how to think, how to interpret, how to connect the dots, how to process. Tim Keller says it's a lot like parenting. He says, think about how we typically raise a child to be a moral person. He says, what do we do so often? He says, at home, and school, we get them, and he says, I don't want you to do this, I don't want you to do that, I don't want you to do this. Of course, what's the first thing a child will ask? Why? How come? And we go, you might get caught. What will the neighbors think? What will you think of yourself? What will this one think? People might not think of highly. Is that the way... And Tim Keller says, he says, look at what we're doing, how to think again. He says, we're making kids, when we do this, moral, good, obedient, by nurturing joylessness, peacelessness, fear, insecurity, anxiety into their lives. He says, the law as external might be able to establish the external moral behavior at the expense of inner peace and joy. He writes, the fear and pride that you will nurture in order to be moral through the law will show up only in private. He says, to be a good tree bearing good fruit requires that you be a supernaturally changed person. What did Paul say? Calculate yourselves. Think about yourselves. Consider yourselves. Why do we need the body of Christ? I need you to help me think about myself a certain way. You need each other to help each other think about yourself a certain way. You know, let me give a practical example in terms of baptism. When a newborn is baptized in front of us, we take a vow to help the parents raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Jesus is talking about the wisdom principle of good comes out of the good treasure that's in them. As children are growing up, how much are we affirming the good treasure that's in them through their relationship with Christ and then wanting the good fruit to come out of that good treasure? That's the principle Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's certainly not saying live any way you want. Character is not just important, it's vital. Where does it come from? Paul writes the only thing that counts is being a new being. Are we helping our children remember their baptism? Are we helping our children? Are we reminding our children that they are, if they're in Christ when they believe, there's good treasure in them? Are we relating to each other in such a way that we're helping each other believe there's good treasure in us? Do we treat each other like treasures? 
And then, yes, sometimes hold accountable out of that and confront out of that. Out of that, and this is the last point, and I'll be very brief here, foundations. The only way to do that is to have the proper foundation. Why do you call me, verse 46, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And here's the heart of the wisdom. I will show you what he's like. Who comes to me and hears my words, puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house. See, Psalm 1 said you're like a tree planted by streams of water. Here you're like a man building a house. You dug down deep. You laid the foundation on rock. Notice the next phrase says, when a flood came. Don't I wish I said, if the flood came. You know, we're entering hurricane season. And we're all going, if the hurricane comes. Jesus leaves no doubt. When the hurricane comes, when the tsunami comes, when the flood comes, the torrent will strike the house. But no matter how hard the torrent tries, it can't. It doesn't have the ability to shake it. Why? It's on the proper foundation. It's on the foundation, the rock that is Christ. And therefore, because it is a new being, a new creation, the new world inaugurated now in the middle of history. It cannot be shaken. That's strength. That's strength that the world does not have. But the one who hears my words, now listen to this, hears my words, maybe sits in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, has family devotions, goes to Sunday school, knows the Westminster Confession backwards and forwards, knows it all but doesn't put them into practice. This is, I don't want one of you to say this isn't, that this is anti-doctrinal. I'm not saying anti-doctrine, I'm saying doctrine is not enough because Jesus is saying doctrine is not enough. It must be put into practice. Does that mean perfectly? Nope, that's bad doctrine. It can't be. But it must be put into practice. Jesus is preaching this sermon aiming for obedience. The one who doesn't put them into practice, only hears it in one ear and out the other, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent came, and it will, when the torrent comes, it'll strike the house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Friends, do you recognize Jesus died to make you the house on the foundation of his death and his resurrection and his ascension? And let me end this way. Do you know what every presentation of the gospel is? It's a proposal of marriage. From God to you. God is saying through the Spirit. Now, you can't accept that. I'm not preaching against election. You can't accept the proposal without the Holy Spirit working in your heart. But the content of the proposal is a proposal of marriage. The content of the gospel is Jesus saying, will you marry me? Because I think the richest, most intimate metaphor given in the Bible describing the relationship between God and his church is we are called the bride of Christ. And in Revelation 19, when the, when the consummation of all this comes, what John got a glimpse of is they said, and I mean, I, I can't imagine how he had, I doubt he said it, take no offense, in a Presbyterian fashion, hallelujah. The wedding supper of the Lamb has come. I say it in good and proper order. I really do think it was a hallelujah. The marriage supper, 
intimacy, the consummation of the marriage. So every presentation, I have the awesome privilege of heralding the good news of the reign of Jesus, and Jesus is asking you right now, will you take him as your husband? Will you marry him? And a good marriage is not one where one lives in Brazil and the other one lives in Philadelphia. Every day, living by the gospel means answering the question, will you marry Jesus? And that's what obedience is. Obedience is not perfection. This is the opposite of legalism. Jesus preached the sermon. Jesus died to have a wife, to have us, that he'd be that foundation. We would be in him and then go figure. We would be a, we'd be the coming attraction of that to the world. Father, teach us to obey your word. Teach us every day to wake up and at least have the willingness to ask ourselves the question, will I follow Jesus today? We're about to come to the Lord's Prayer in a couple of weeks that you kind of put the summary of it when you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The foundation that is Jesus is a foundation of grace. So we will never do your will perfectly while we live in between the times. But, Father, if we are in Christ, our heart's desire, the amazing thing about the circumcised heart is we now desire to be conformed to your word that is sweeter than honey, that's purer than gold. So, Lord, may we be a church that's wise that builds on the foundation of Christ so that when the torrent comes, nothing will break it. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.